This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146 Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association. Respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello. I'm very happy that you could join the program today, and I pray it might bring benefit to all of us. We're looking at an ancient mind-training text titled Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun by the Tibetan Namka Pal. It's his commentary on another text, The Seven Points of Mind Training. And we've come to the section on the commitments of mind training, which all appears in English translation as maxims like train consistently to deal with difficult situations, don't rely on other conditions, transform your attitude but maintain natural behavior, and don't speak of others' incomplete qualities. And that last one is the one we've been speaking about over the last two or three programs. So today we'll move on to the next instruction, which is don't concern yourself with others' business. But now before we continue with that, let's check our motivation as we usually do and bring ourselves up to speed with a bodhicitta intention. Thank you. Now, don't concern yourself with others' business or, as some translators have termed it, don't ponder others. This is the next instruction in the mind training text and Namkapel comments rather obscurely, you should neither think nor say such things as, I am able to cope because I am a practitioner of mind training, otherwise it would be impossible to deal with such a person. Perhaps Geshe Jampa Tekchok's commentary in his book, The Kindness of Others, is more accessible when he says we should not be preoccupied with investigating other people's faults as this is not our business. But I think both commentaries are instructing us not to let our minds dwell on the faults and difficulties presented by others and make them our business. If we do, we start to criticize and find fault and create more and more chaos. And why do we do it? Is it not because we have some insecurity within ourselves that needs to be covered up? Tranga Rinpoche links this instruction to the previous one, don't speak of others' incomplete qualities, and they are pretty similar. He differentiates the two like this. The fifth point, that is, don't speak of others' incomplete qualities, is that we should not talk about others' weaknesses. This mainly has to do with how we communicate. Our words should be nice and not unpleasant. The main point here. Others' business has to do with how they look, how they speak, with their attitude, and whether they are rich or not. We may think there is something wrong in some of these areas, but that doesn't mean we have to speak about it. In terms of Dharma practice, something may be lacking, but it doesn't mean it is our job to point this out to everyone. There's another point here which has to do with our motivation. If we really have a good heart, and are sure that others will change by what we say, then it is a different matter. 
If we say it nicely, that's okay. But if it's said out of ill will, rivalry, spite or other negative emotions, then it belongs to talking about others' weaknesses which should be avoided. We should not engage in conversations about others' faults. We don't point out faults in people who have physical deficiencies such as lameness or blindness or mental deficiencies such as stupidity. Likewise, we don't point out dharma faults in others such as their being lazy and not practicing or their breaking their vows. In other words, we don't say harmful things about others. Rather, with a smile we should speak in a very gentle, loving manner in a way that makes sense and is pleasing to them. He then goes on to comment on not making others' business our business. He says, The previous instruction dealt with the way we act, while this instruction concerns motivation. If we have faults, we need to think about them and be concerned about them. Otherwise, the faults will only increase and grow stronger. So we need to look at our faults because nobody else is going to do that for us. But when it comes to others' faults, we don't need to look for them, especially those of our Dharma friends and other Dharma practitioners. Of course, they're going to have faults and that's something which they themselves will have to deal with. It's their own karma, so there's absolutely no point in our doing it for them. In fact, getting involved in others' faults can only bring harm. We can't fix or do anything about the faults others possess. They have to deal with their own problems. If they are lazy, they may be doing the best they can. Most people who have entered the Dharma do try. They may have large obstacles, but they do the best they can. For us to search for their faults and point them out doesn't make any sense at all and doesn't do any good. We only need to examine our own faults. In other words, we may spend a lot of attention trying to figure out what others are doing and whether it is right or wrong. Because we bring such thoughts into our mind, sooner or later it becomes a matter of speech. Here, we're just pondering others' affairs, and that is unnecessary. Rather, it is better simply to respect others and trust that they are probably doing their best, doing what they consider right. Afterwards, we work with becoming used to this view. If out of a good heart we see faults, then of course it is all right to see if it's possible to mend them. Now that's what Trangu Rinpoche says. And now let's look at what other commentators have said about this particular instruction. Chogyam Trungpa, in his book, Training the Mind and Cultivating Loving Kindness, wrote this. In this slogan, pondering others means picking on other people's little misgivings and problems. One of the problems we have generally is that when somebody does something to us or violates our principles, we keep picking on that particular thing. We would like to get at him and make sure that that person's problems are subject to attack, subject to unhealthiness. He then uses Tong Len, the practice of taking on suffering and giving out happiness, as an example. He says, for instance, because you have labored through your Tong Len practice and worked so hard, you develop tremendous arrogance. You feel as though you've gone through so much and that your effort makes you a worthy person. So when you meet somebody who's not accomplished what you have, you would like to put them down. This slogan is very simple. Don't do that. I do not think there's very much difference between this slogan and the preceding one. They are basically saying the same thing. Both slogans are very simple and direct. 
All the slogans are points which come to you, not particularly traffic signs, but reminders. And each time a particular point occurs to you, the slogan as a whole becomes more meaningful. And that is Chogram Krumpa. In her book, Start Where You Are, A Guide to Compassionate Living, Pema Children, that's Chogyan Trumpa's heart disciple, describes a fictional chap called Mortimer. Mortimer is a kind of everyman who serves as a vessel for Pema Children to fill with whatever she wants to use as an example when she has a point to make. Early on in the book, while talking about the three ways we tend to react to people, she describes Mortimer like this. And then there's good old Mortimer that person sitting next to you on the, in the meditation hall or who works in your office. Some people are lusting when they see Mortimer. He looks wonderful in, to them. A lot of their discursive thought is taken up with what they'd like to do with Mortimer. A certain number of people hate him. They haven't even talked to him yet, but the moment they saw, saw him, they felt loathing. Some of us haven't noticed him, and we may never notice him. In fact, a few years from now, he'll tell us he was here and we'll be surprised. Now, when she comes to talk about the slogan about not pondering others, she returns to Mortimer with a rather nice story to illustrate her point, which is that the slogan is talking about putting others down to build oneself up. She says, maybe you only do it mentally. After all, you don't actually say these things out loud because people would disapprove. But in your mind you talk a lot about Mortimer, how you hate the way he dresses, and how he walks, and how he stares coldly at you when you smile. You say, now this is enough, I've been criticizing Mortimer since the day I arrived here, I'm going to try to make friends. But Mortimer just meets your sunny false smile with an icy stare. So you continue to ponder Mortimer's awful ways as you sit here on the cushion, and you very seldom label it thinking or breathe it in. It doesn't occur to you to exchange yourself for Mortimer and you certainly don't feel grateful to him. In other words, we sit mulling over Mortimer's faults, not looking at what our own mind is doing. We don't even try to recognize that how Mortimer appears to us is just a matter of our egotistical thinking, our projection. We're so enamored with the content of our thinking that we never stop to watch the fleeting process and see how we are creating a mental Mortimer that has very little to do with a real person. We never stop to breathe in the suffering we're going through and breathe out happiness and well-being to ourselves, Mortimer and all the others. And while we're caught up in the process of hating Mortimer, we certainly do not put ourselves in his shoes to try and understand where he's coming from and develop a little compassion. In the Great Path of Awakening, an easily accessible introduction for ordinary people, Jamyang Kontrol makes his take on the slogan pithy and short. Do not think about other people's affairs, he says. In general, the faults of any sentient being, but in particular, the faults of anyone who has entered the practice of Dharma. Rather, think, seeing this fault is due to the impurity in my own outlook. Such a fault is not in this person. I am like those people who saw faults in Buddha, the enlightened one. Thus terminate this faulty attitude in your own mind. Nevertheless, in his book, The Seven Point Mind Training, B. Allen Wallace agrees but has much more to say. 
He translates the instruction as think nothing of the other side and writes this. This next pledge takes the preceding text a step further, moving to an even more subtle level of practice. What does it mean not to think about the other side? We are encouraged here not to dwell mentally on the faults of sentient beings in general and more specifically not to dwell upon the faults of those engaging in spiritual practice. Even more specifically, do not dwell on the faults of Dharma friends. As we enter into spiritual practice and become more sensitive to our own faults, it is probably inevitable that we also become more sensitive to the faults of others. As many of us have experienced, this can be quite an unpleasant phase of practice. We simply seem to be slogging through our own and other people's shortcomings. We set ourselves ideals and we see how we fail to live up to them and also how other people fail, at least in our own eyes. Now we are being told not to even think of anyone's faults and particularly not those of Dharma practitioners and our own companions on the path. It is tremendously refreshing for the mind to simply drop this habit. When we do observe a fault, what should we do? Regardless of whether we are hunting for faults, they can simply present themselves as if from the other person's side. An intelligent response is immediately to check the extent to which we are projecting our own faults and past conditioning onto the other person. This is especially effective if we are imputing some mental fault such as pride, arrogance or thoughtlessness upon this person. When we see faults in others, especially mental faults, let us first simply acknowledge that we are making an assumption rather than a necessary inference. It may be accurate and it may not. Even such ostensibly unwholesome actions as slander, lying or harming others physically may in fact be appropriate if the motivation is compassion. A parent, for example, may need to punish an unruly child in order to teach a lesson that will prevent the child from coming to grief later on. The word here is caution. Stand back from judgment and certainly do not dwell on the faults of others. Doing so is a very unpleasant affliction of our own minds. And this applies to our, also our relationship with a spiritual mentor. The great scriptures of the Bodhisattva path encourage us to look upon our teacher as if he or she were a Buddha. Note the precise phrasing which underlines the difference between the sutra practice and tantra. Look upon the spiritual mentor as if he or she were a Buddha. A Buddha has no faults, no obscurations, no distortions, no afflictions. In practice, this means that whenever we see a fault in our spiritual mentor, we should be willing to consider that what we see may actually be a projection of our own mind. To realize this is a tremendous boon requiring continual practice and we should apply it to ourselves as well as others. When we start to belittle ourselves for our own faults, recognize that they are simply afflictions obscuring our own essential purity and our capacity for full awakening. These temporary distortions are not who we are and we do have the means for overcoming them. This is what the Buddha Dharma is all about, the dispelling of distortions and obscurations. If we can develop a sympathy and gentleness towards ourselves, not complacency, but self-love in the best sense of the term, then when we see faults in others, we can transfer to them the wisdom we have acquired internally. 
even if a fault seems quite blatant, instead of responding with agitation and intolerance, we can recognize it sympathetically as an affliction similar to those we suffer ourselves. And that's the commentary of Alan Wallace. Particularly in the Tantric tradition, the Guru must be seen as a Buddha and faultless. In Tibetan Buddhism, the Guru is recognized as even more important than Shakyamuni Buddha himself. In his book, The Heart of the Path, Seeing the Guru as Buddha, Lama Zoparumbashe has something to say about this and expands on seeing the Guru as a perfect being. He says, When people take LSD, Datura, or some other hallucinogenic drug, they hallucinate and actually see things that are different from how they normally are. They might see dust as worms, or hear people talking though nobody is there. But actually seeing or hearing these things doesn't mean that they exist in reality. He then mentions tantric deities that appear to be wrathful to our vision, but don't have any anger at all because they are enlightened beings. And he continues, All these examples illustrate that nothing is definite in our own view, including our view of the virtuous friend, the virtuous friend here being the guru. Saying that we actually see particular faults in our gurus is not logical proof that the faults exist in reality and that the gurus are not Buddhas. What appears to us depends on the state of our mind. What we see is our own mental projection, our own view. If our mind is pure, we will see things purely. But the more impure or obscured our mind is, the more impure what appears to us will be. When we are training our mind to look at the Guru as Buddha, when we see a fault in our Guru, we have to think that it is the view of our impure mind. Even if faults appear to us, we don't believe that the Guru actually has these faults, just as we don't believe that things are inherently existent, even though they appear to us in that way. This protects our mind so that seeing faults doesn't become an obstacle that causes us to lose our devotion, the root of the path to enlightenment. As ordinary beings, our mind has been heavily obscured by ignorance during beginningless rebirths. In the view of such heavily obscured mind, it would be impossible to see the Guru as Buddha. Lamazopa then quotes Pabonka Rinpoche with, Those with certain diseases are mistaken as to the objects of their perception. Since the minds of us ordinary beings are made defective by ignorance, which projects hallucinations, how is it possible for us to see the Guru as the Buddha? Lama Zopa then continues, We have seen that we don't necessarily see even ordinary objects in the way that they exist, and seeing the Guru as Buddha is much harder than that. Since we can't even see ordinary beings accurately, it would be extremely difficult for us to discriminate whether a separate being has an enlightened mind. Remembering that the way things appear to us doesn't necessarily accord with reality, we at least begin to lean more to the side that perhaps our gurus are Buddhas. And if we begin to think that someone might be a Buddha, we will be much more careful in our actions related to that being. One simple and concise reason that we don't see the guru as Buddha is that we don't have the view of a completely pure mind, the holy mind of a Buddha. Omniscience is the object only of omniscience. Everything thought, known and done by an omniscient mind is the object only of an omniscient mind. And he goes on, Only an omniscient mind can definitely and faultlessly see the minds of other beings. 
Since we don't have omniscient mind or even clairvoyance, we can't judge others. We can't really say whether or not anyone else is a Buddha. We can only really be sure about whether or not we ourselves are a Buddha. We can see clearly and judge our own mind, but we can't see and judge the minds of others. Outside of this, there is nobody we can be fully confident about. We can only guess about the minds of others. Therefore, our not perceiving our Guru as Buddha doesn't mean our Guru is not a Buddha. And that is Lama Zopramshe. Now apart from the fact that we can't tell whether another person is a Buddha or not, we can't even tell what they are thinking at any given moment. They could be mulling over a number of scenarios or concerns, so our judgment about what is going on with them is definitely going to be at least partly wrong. And often enough, we are way off track about others' motivations. So this is why it is ill-advised for us to spend time pondering about others, and why the slogan tells us not to ponder over others. In fact, when we find fault and cultivate stories in our mind about others, we are often just projecting our own unresolved baggage onto them. We then do not interact to the actual person, we interact with our perception of them, and the two can be very different. Dr. Nick Reed, a retired physician and nutritionist, and currently working as a psychotherapist, explains projection in a blog titled How You Make Me Feel, Projection and Its Identification. In the blog on mindbodydoc.wordpress.com he writes, Projection is a ubiquitous feature of human nature. It is the cornerstone of evolution, what makes us human, the effect of an opposable thumb. As soon as we could throw, we could make things happen. We could control the future. But this required us to perform the mental trick of imagination, to think the way things might be, to make believe. Psychological projection performs that same mental trick. It transfers what we feel onto somebody else, to imagine it is they who have those same feelings and attitudes. So we protect ourselves from psychic damage by projecting the bad stuff onto those we recognize already possess some of the characteristics we want to get rid of. She's just so selfish. I can't trust him. He's so lazy, careless, unreliable, fussy, messy. This happens all the time. Just listen to how a gossip of girls on the train criticizes absent friends. Look at how politicians try to achieve a semblance of dominance and control by rubbishing their competitors. How newspapers take hold of that and amplify it. He goes on to explain how projection starts in childhood and says, Children deal with uncomfortable feelings like fear and anger by externalizing them. First, identify your enemy. Locate all the bad stuff onto them, and then you can justify an attack. Or identify the one you admire. Locate all your wishes in that person and make them your best friend. Projection is a mental trick. There are goodies and baddies. In my childhood, these were cowboys and Indians, the English and the Germans. How differently you see things as you grow up. Maturity is a state of recognizing the bad feelings, taking them back and containing them, realizing that what we criticize in other people is also part of us, accepting our essential humanity. Groups, organizations, institutions, governments, states do it all the time. They are pathologically split. They operate at a very childlike manner and project all their own concealed characteristics, especially the bad ones, 
like unreliability, inadequacy, lack of sophistication, to say nothing of selfishness and ruthlessness, onto their competitors. Members of an exclusive culture, music critics, art enthusiasts, historians, theatre buffs, vintage car collectors can tend to puff themselves up by broadcasting their lacunae of esoterica to an audience they assume knows nothing and can be diminished by their ignorance. But projection can only really work in society if others identify with it. And this is what the psychoanalysts, another in-group, call projective identification, or, to put it in everyday speak, how others make us feel. In voodoo, pointing the bone can cause others to feel so guilty by inference, whether they are or not, that they slink away and die. They have been ostracized from the tribe, they are not worthy to belong anymore, and they cannot therefore survive. Social exclusion is a powerful force, guilt and shame, powerful identifications. People who have done something shameful to attract the projections of others, who use it as a shield for their own shame. And it's always the ones with most to be ashamed of that seek out those they can offload onto. Those who feel unhappy make those who are close to them unhappy too. He goes on, Projective identification operates on so many aspects of human behavior. Bullies can't contain their own fear, so they make others frightened of them. Suspicious people are secretive and engender mistrust and lies. Needy people cannot give and induce need in others. Those who are envious put on airs and graces to try to make others envy them. Lovers who feel insecure may do something to make their partners feel jealous. Unhappy and lonely people make those who are close to them unhappy too, because at least they are together in their misery. Teachers who are not confident can make their students feel stupid, but equally the overconfident student can make a teacher defensive. You make me feel sick, you make me so angry, you just make me depressed. These are all common identifications within relationships. Those who carry a grudge are attracted to political groups, but can be very dangerous because they can cause others to feel bad and act out. So did Ian Brady make Myra Hendley do it? Projective identification is never a justification in law, but it happens. He goes on to point out that some doctors are so anxious that they can make their patients terrified. Michael Ballant, the author of The Doctor, the Patient and the Illness, recognized this, he writes. Patients pass the anxiety of not knowing what's wrong with them onto the doctor so that he orders more tests in order not to appear a failure. Or their attitude may make the doctors feel angry, depressed, tired. Emotional transference is such a powerful phenomenon. As a therapist, I'd always marveled at how one client could make me feel so wound up and energetic, the next so tired I could fall asleep and have actually done so, but they were lying on the couch and I was sitting behind them and they never noticed. Actors are masters of projection. They tune into their audience and make us all identify with the emotions they project. I have had two actors in therapy. One made me feel so angry I actually had a chest pain and needed to ask him to leave. The other made me feel such surges of desire and compassion. It was all I could do not to take her in my arms and love her right there and then. 
He goes on to talk about marriage as states of mutual projection and identification. But we are going to have to leave him there and perhaps go on with this next week, for now our time is up. Thanks so much for joining the program today, and please dedicate it as usual to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all beings everywhere. Thank you, and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.